Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can receive it together. I pray that our hearts would be open and soft, that we would be attentive to your voice and we would respond to the call to move deeper and deeper into your own life. We confess that our minds are not strong enough to do it, nor are our hearts, and we need you, the help of your Holy Spirit, to make it so. God, we ask that you do that in us this morning. Amen. Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. It's, it's good to see you all. Um, hopefully, if, uh, if I don't know you, I'll get a chance to meet you uh, later today. Um, that was my daughter, Ryan, uh, who did the reading for us this morning. Uh, Daniel started to define ways to, that we can incorporate youth into um, in our service, and my daughter just happened to be the first one to sign up to do the reading. So um, I did not make her do that, for the record. Um, I did give her a lot of verses to read. Um, so you too can be a part of that, um, and I will try to cut it down, cut the reading down next time for you. We're in a, we're in a series on the seven deadly sins, um, and last week Ben Lillard talked about greed, um, which uh, I thought he did a great job. We put him in a tough spot and was like, here, uh, it's very late, now preach, um, and he did great. And uh, I was personally challenged by that, uh, a lot of things that he said. Um, and after the fact, I was, I was thinking about, about what he said, what it means for my life, and um, how that reflects my own conduct with my wallet. And, but then I also thought about our church, and um, I did, I did want to tell you all, I know that Ben agrees, we all agree as elders, we, this largely as a church is a very generous church. Um, and we're really grateful to be in a, in a church with largely a, a corporate practice of generosity together. And um, I want to thank you for that. It is, it is really cool to know that when we bring something before you guys, like a need or something, uh, we know that Valley Hope is going to respond. Um, so it's, it's great that we can talk about a vice that we all struggle with, greed, in the context of a community that is largely marked by generosity. That just opens up freedom to say, okay, let's like really deal with the stuff that we deal with all together. So I want to thank you for that personally. Uh, uh, like I said the first week, I scheduled out this um, seven weeks uh, largely at random and uh, did not realize it would be daylight savings when we would be talking about the vice of sloth. Um, <laughs> That's just the Lord, okay? So that, that was not a clever plan by me. Uh, it's just the providence of God. Uh, sloth, uh, which we, is something we typically understand to mean laziness. Um, you know, we, we all by now are uh, familiar with pictures of sloths moving very, very slowly. And um, we just understand that. Uh, uh, picture to be about this vice, laziness. Um, you know, I, I spent a year of my life living outside of the United States, and um, that you learn things about your own place, your own country, when you live outside of the country. 
and you learn um, things that are weird that you just thought were normal. Um, it it still is hilarious to me that my friends get in South Africa get so annoyed that we call the baseball championship the World Series. Uh, they're, they're like, it's not the world, it's just your country. And I'm just like, well, start playing baseball and maybe we'll invite you to play. Um, uh, but, you know, you learn a little bit about the reputation of where you're from. Uh, uh, Americans have a reputation. We're quite a presence in, in the world. Um, loud. Um, largely oblivious of the rest of the world. Fat. Um, uh, charitable, very generous. Americans are viewed as very generous. Um, lazy is not on the list. Um, Americans work a lot. A lot. And we generally pride ourselves on being a country of industriousness. Like, calling somebody lazy is a really serious insult in our culture. And we work more than most people in the world. When uh, I would talk to my friends about how vacation works and like paid leave time from jobs, they were horrified. They were like, you guys need to go on holiday. They couldn't believe that most people just don't have... When I, when I, at that time, I was saying like after I worked a year at the job that I was... I was at, I had earned one week of vacation. They were like, everybody here has at least two weeks of vacation, and, and you probably will lose employees if you only have two. Some people save them up and take off months at a time. And I was just like, y'all live in a different world. And they said, no, you live in a different world. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and so it, it can seem like laziness is not something that we are particularly in need of talking about. Um, but I actually want us to listen to the way the word is given before it gets translated in to the language of laziness. Because the way that the early writers about these seven deadly vices or sins, they would not specifically talk about laziness in regards to this. I want you to learn a different word, not sloth, but acedia. Um, and there's like disagreement on how the word is even pronounced, and which has bothered me probably too much for the past week. I'm just telling you it's acedia, and you can find it, somebody else saying acedia or acadia or acedia, and I don't care. I'm picking acedia, and I have the microphone, so that's it. Acedia is this vice that early monks start writing about. And I think they write about an experience that you and I can pretty easily identify with, even if we're probably not saying, like, laziness is a big problem for, for me. They describe this as the noonday demon. And what the experience that they give to illustrate this struggle is it's the feeling in the middle of the day when the sun is at its highest and then it just seems to stall out. And this thing in your soul feels the dragging on 
of every single moment so that it never feels like time ever advances. And if you're a monk in your cell, you are constantly looking to the door, hoping that somebody will be coming to visit you, or constantly hoping to escape. This feeling of profound boredom. And as uh, Rebecca DeYoung describes it in her book on the vices, acedia is fundamentally a rejection of love's demands. And I would say, while we live in a place, in a time, in America, in the 21st century, where I'm not particularly worried about any of us exalting laziness as a virtue, I would say that we live in a place and a time that is organized to feed and to encourage acedia. Because the attentiveness to love that is required by the follower of Jesus meets stiff opposition just by existing in this world that we all walk together in. We read today in Genesis 1 and in John 15. Genesis 1 is, of course, the very beginning of the whole biblical story. And this is the first account of God's creating of our first parents. And he says that we're going to create in our image and likeness, and he breathes in the dust, and man and woman are formed, and then he gives these instructions. It's the first commands to humanity. And he tells them that what they are called to do is to be fruitful and to multiply and to, in essence, extend the boundaries of flourishing to the ends of the world. The idea is to make Eden the the size of the globe and to reproduce that order and flourishing everywhere. And that is part of what it means to be human. Part of what it means to be human is to be engaged in the task of flourishing everywhere that you go with everyone that you are called to. And fruitfulness is meant to be a mark of your life and mine. And Jesus extends that call. Of course, Genesis 1 is happening in the context of an unbroken, unfallen world. And Jesus, many years later, in the wreckage of sin, reaffirms that call to fruitfulness and applies it in a new way. But using some of this same sort of garden imagery, saying that that we are called to be living organisms, abiding in God himself. And what does he say that ought to be the mark? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is part of what it means to be human. And a lively, flourishing faith is part of what we are called to every single day. And acedia is that feeling deep in your gut that what you ought to do is to turn aside. 
do anything else but this. Yesterday, the men's breakfast, I, I was the one doing the devotion that day, and I was talking about reading the Bible and the importance of reading the Word. And I, I would say probably if you're a normal person, this is your most frequent contact, most apparent contact with this vice of acedia. You know the feeling that I am talking about. You know the feeling that you know the place where fruitfulness starts is at the mouth of God. That the scriptures are meant to be a kind of home for you. And yet you also know that reading the Bible is hard often and it's boring because it doesn't talk like you and I do. And so it becomes this really difficult task that, so that maybe you're following a, a Bible reading plan or, or maybe you're just taking your time and going through things and you're supposed to read a chapter, a whole chapter of the Bible. And look, really, if it was just a reading exercise, if I just covered the titles and the numbers and everything and just gave you a text, it would probably take you like seven minutes to read those many words. But when you put those names back on the top of the page and the numbers in it, and it's in the middle of your Bible and you read it, it feels like an hour and a half of slogging. And if you're trying to do it in the morning, if you're trying to do it in the middle of the day when you're tired, if you're trying to do it at the end of the day when you're tired, it feels like reading through a swimming pool of molasses. And everything in you says, shall I not just turn aside? Shall I not go find someplace else to be? And that is what we are talking about. But the life of following Jesus is a life of hearing the call to find fruitfulness in God, to be a participant, and to turn aside from that noonday demon. Now, our sort of bowing down to this temptation takes several different forms. The, the first one is the one sort of on the label, right? It's laziness. The, the easiest response when you hear this beckoning to stay away from an attentive life of love is to just gratify the desires and swim with instead of against the current and to just sort of relax. Now, as, as addicted to work as we are as an American culture, we are also really good at giving permission to ourselves. And so a lot of, of the language around this now becomes, instead of resist, becomes self-care. Look, self-care is real. Let me just say that. Yes, you need to take care of yourself in a lot of ways. That's not what I'm saying. But when that umbrella called self-care gets as wide as this stage, 
so that anything that you want to do becomes self-care, now we are in the territory of laziness. When self-care is just telling you, actually, you never have to do anything hard, well, that, that's a problem. That would be a problem. Because sometimes caring for yourself involves really difficult things. Sometimes going to the doctor involves the doctor telling me things like, you actually have to eat more salad. And I know that part of taking care of myself is obeying those doctor's orders. And I hate it. I do not like vegetables. Self-care is a, is a, can be a version of avoiding the call to stay and to listen and to attend. And when that happens, laziness is what we start to see. Now, we can see that in all kinds of ways. But we can see it in like, well, you know what? Uh, I don't need to be a part of the community of God this week or actually next week. You know, I'll fit it in once a month. And those other weeks I have more important, more enjoyable things that make me feel more rested. And those become habits that slowly creep and take over our lives until soon our lives just look like a life of avoidance. So one way that we can capitulate to the demands of, of this demon that would have us not pay attention is to indeed be lazy. However, I'd say it's just as likely, maybe even more so, that you will capitulate to the demands of this demon in a completely opposite direction. And it is by being addicted to your work. Because what Jesus demands in John 15 is a kind of attention to him and abiding in him. And the language of Genesis 1 is a language of rootedness and attentiveness to the locality that God has called you. And sometimes the demands of home, the demands of friendship, the demands of community are most easily avoided by keeping that clock at work running. I would say if Americans, if we would be more likely or more prone to capitulate to the distractions of Acedia, it is that we would capitulate in this way. And we would fill our lives with busyness. And we would fill it with a kind of fruitfulness that we get to define on our own terms. It is more profitable financially. It is more profitable in terms of us being able to control the outcome. It is profoundly tempting to look at a life that God calls us to pay attention to. And when the sun seems to stall out, to say, let me fill this with earning. Let me fill this with work. I get worth from work. People tell me I'm good at work. And then they pay me to prove it. 
And so you can be lazy and you can be an overworker living radically different appearing lives and still both be tied into the same vice. Now let's leave aside the question of work. How else is it easy to capitulate? The monks talk about when this thing comes on them, the temptation is to run out the door. I'm no huge fan of monasteries or anything, but the breaking of their vows is a serious thing, and it never becomes more tempting than when this demon starts to whisper in their ears. The temptation is to leave. And you and I face this same temptation all the time. We especially experience this in the demands of relationships. In the context in which God has called us to live fruitful lives in relationship, it is so easy to just say, I'm out. Look, of course, there are good reasons to exit a relationship. You should do that in many circumstances. That's what's so difficult. Temptation works this way. Temptation is usually like, hey, do this apparently evil thing. Isn't that tempting? Temptation instead usually works like, hey, do this apparently good thing, which is actually evil. The devil doesn't get you, doesn't whisper lies to you by doing the most obvious thing. He gives you what sounds right and good and true, but is ultimately a hook to pull you away to disaster. So yes, you should leave unhealthy relationships in context at times. However, the command to stay, to be rooted, and to bring flourishing is one that we ought not seriously just cast aside, but instead receive the challenge and the discipline of a place and friendships and community. What else? I think the most obvious way that we wrestle against this spirit is probably in your pocket right now, maybe in your purse. You, you're probably feeling for it right now because it's probably been too many seconds since you touched it. Just got to feel that little piece of glass right there on your fingertips. We have perpetual <laughs> distraction devices currently on us all the time. And those devices are specifically engineered at a hardware and software level based on the reality that you will deal with this specific vice. Those machines are constructed for every single moment when you feel like time slows down so that now... We look back at monks saying, man, it's been a long four hours. And we're like, 
four hours. I'm in line for 14 seconds, and my hand is reaching for my phone. Any possible instant where time drags at all, you have access to a piece of technology that will instantly silence that dragon. And you and I will regularly, hours at a time, hundreds of times a day, capitulate to that call again and again and again, purely out of boredom. There is no information that you need for 98% of the time that you pick up your phone. It is pure distraction. Because we find boredom to be so punishing to our minds and our souls that we have actually forgotten what boredom really is. You and I are not looking at acedia as a strange foreign word on a list from hundreds of years ago. We are living in the dominion of acedia. We live in a world constructed around obedience to it. And so our hearts... Suck up distraction willingly and freely, and we fritter away a life that is called to rooted attention to God and where He has called us. Part of this season of Lent is a constant reflection on the, the phrase that you hear on Ash Wednesday. You are from dust, and to dust you will return. You are from dust, and to dust you will return. And every moment that we feel that boredom in the moment is too much to bear, we blow away fragments of our dustly time giving them away as if we are people wealthy in time when in fact our life is momentary. And that is exactly how the enemy would have you spend your life. Because what God wants for you and for me is the same thing that he intended way back in Genesis 1, that you would be people, partners in his project of flourishing, attentive to the work of love and the very place that he has put you and called you. The devil wants you to be distracted, to leave, to comfort yourself, to distract yourself with work, to distract yourself with your phone so that you would not hear Jesus' insistence. Stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. Find your life in me. 
Don't find your life in your pleasures. Do not find your life in your work. Do not find your life in the opinions of others or in your, work, in your uh, paycheck from work. Find your life in me. And the reality is that attending to that command is, is difficult. It is hard. And that's the reality we all have to confess to one another. I know it should be easy, Jesus says, for me to stay with him. I, I know that that should be the easy thing, but it is hard. It is difficult. Every moment of my day pulls me somewhere else. And we have to say that together out loud. Yes, it is difficult to stay with Jesus. It is the work. It is true work all the time. The weariness that we are pushing against is real. The distraction out there is real. The demands of our flesh and of our lives, those are real. And Jesus is saying that, not in a moment of ease. Jesus is saying this in John 15 as he prepares to go to the cross. Jesus faces the demon of Assyria in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus faces up to the demands of the act of fruitfulness required of him. And he has agony in that garden moment. If there is another way, let it be so. But not my will, but yours be done. His intention all along was to take you and me and other disciples who fell asleep at the wheel in that moment and to spread himself out and offer the fruitfulness of his own life. It was, in fact, to rescue people like you and me who can barely hold a thought in his direction for just a few minutes at a time. It is to that degree that you are loved by God. It'd be tempting to fight against the demon of Assyria by using the stick of shame you ought to do better. I ought to do better. And that shame stick works because it's kind of true. Right? I should do better. But you and I will not be beaten into flourishing. The thing that stirs up cold, dead hearts is seeing Jesus in his supreme moment of fruitfulness for you. It is love embodied and torn apart on the cross that beckons us to stay where love demands. 
If you and I are ever to be people who more frequently give ourselves over to the demands of love, it will only be when you see love himself and what it is that he demands of you. The crucified and resurrected Jesus, he makes his place with disciples that are distractible and sleepy and bored. And he has bound himself to you forever. Forever. And so you don't have to tackle this thing on your own strength and just say, I'm going to bear down, I'm going to change all my habits, I'm just going to be a better person, I'm going to do it. And then like four days later, you look at your screen time, you've been on your phone like eight hours. That's just how it's going to work. If it is all about you, love and his demands are difficult but he never intended for you to be his partner in flourishing on your own strength alone. And ultimately, he breathes his own spirit into dusty people like you and me that our whole lives would be lit up, not with our own strength, but the strength of God himself. That you confessing your weakness would find God to be very strong for you. And if you are here today and you realize, you know, I've done these things. I've like indulged myself constantly. I've overworked myself to to pursue a life of distraction. I I have just left. I've just, just vacated and said, I'm just not dealing with these people or this place anymore. Or maybe you just realize you have spent the bulk of your most recent years on your phone. Whatever that is, looks like for you. If you are here today, the call of God is to something far better. The life that God has for you is full and rich. It is located here. It is looking people in the face. It is giving yourself away in the way that he made you. So even if you have a terrible job, like you hate your job and you're there just to get a paycheck, God would call people even like you to do terrible jobs that you hate in such a way that people have to look in at you and say, I know this guy hates his job. Why is he working like this? Why is he so fruitful? Because even in these venues of jobs that we hate, we still hear the creator God saying, be fruitful and multiply. God has called you to that. Wherever your workplace is, is a place where God is sending you. If you're a mom that has no workplace except dealing with three small children who are slowly every day driving you insane, that is a place where God has called you to flourish under his hand. And maybe you're here today and realizing, I have just hit the eject button time and again. What God wants for you is true rest, not coping mechanisms, not distraction, but that you would only find your rest in him. And so if you are tired today and worn out from all your leaving and self-distraction, come find your rest in Jesus. And if you are ashamed of how once again you have fallen asleep at the wheel. 
Jesus has always chosen disciples like you. You are his favorite kind. Because you can confess the truth about yourself. I am sick. And I need the help of a healer. And he is that healer. But come find your life of flourishing. In God and God alone. That the whole world might be full of his life and the fruit of his love. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to us, that we are faithless. And God, I pray that you would help us not capitulate to the systems of this world, not give in to the lies of the enemy and the demands of our flesh. But I pray, God, that we would be attentive to love's demands and we would give ourselves over. Father, I pray that you would help us. We need so much help. God, I pray for good things like habits and accountability and all these things. But more than anything else, Father, I pray for all of us that our lives would be filled to overflowing by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those of us who are burdened by fatigue and by distraction and being stressed, stretched so thin. God, I pray that you would help us to hear Jesus' call to stay with him and there first find our fruitfulness. Father, I pray that these people who are weighted down would receive the light, non-burdensome gift of following Jesus. Even as you demand our whole lives, it is love itself that claims us. Father, let our appetites be ever stoked for you. May we be hungry and thirsty for you the way that we should as we live in this place and this time with these people, that all might come and find their fruitfulness in you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.